0: Psalm 24 comes right after Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the most famous psalm in the world, right? And it gives us a fantastic vision of what life with God is like. Psalm 24 follows it up and tells us in many ways how we can reach that life, how we can get there. The psalm contains, uh, it contains sort of an introduction that tells us where we're at in the world, and then it has one main question and two main answers, and then it ends with a kind of a warning. So that's what we're going to look at today, one main question, two answers, and then it ends with a warning. The psalm begins with kind of fantastic logic. I love David's logic. David wrote this psalm, and I think he's trying to remind himself, as we all need to do every day, remind himself of what is actually true about life and the world. And the most basic fact, the, the thing that is the most true, that we need to rely on and start with, is that God made everything. And David's logic in here is fantastic. He says, the earth is the Lord's. That is, it belongs to God. Why? Because he made it. And it's so simple, but that is so powerful Everything you see, the entire world, and in fact every person in the world, you yourself, belong to God because he made you. And if that's true, then we must live in a very different way than we would live if we belonged to ourselves or if the earth was ours because we just happened to be here. We listened to a number of songs today, sang a number of songs, and one of those songs, the hymn, We we, At the beginning of the service, we heard those words, all that borrow life from you, God, are always in your hands. And that is exactly the position we find ourselves in, borrowing life from God. There is a certain sense in which your life is your own because God has given it to you to take care of, but it's not your own in that you own it. It's your own in that it is your responsibility and your gift. To use it as God teaches us to use it. Not to use your life or the things of this world just any way you want. We were last, uh, on Friday, we climbed this, did this hike called Dog Mountain. I already mentioned on Mount Seymour. How many of you have been up there? Dog Mountain? Just the youth group? How many, okay, it's actually very similar, although the view is better than on Grouse Mountain. How many of you have been up Grouse Mountain and seen the view from there? probably a lot more. This view is actually even better because it's a little bit higher and there's not you know 10,000 people all around you and noise. But we get up there to the top of the mountain and it was a little bit harder hike than I had expected. So some of our people were very tired. But when you get out there, it is 110% worth it. You climb out and you see the world from a different perspective. One of the ways that God sees the world, from up high, And you see this incredible place that he's made with mountains and land that's abundant with green uh, plants and trees. And and you see the ocean and you see all the things. And you see the buildings and people. And the people look like, I mean, you can't really see them, but you kind of imagine them like ants out there in the world just crawling around doing their thing. But what strikes me when I see a view like that very often is that it is so obvious We can't get into all the reasons, but it is so obvious that someone has made this for us, that we could never have made it on our own. Are you kidding me? It couldn't have just popped into existence without something outside of it. And so there is a God. And all the people down there milling around like ants, it always makes me wonder how many even give a thought to the one who gave them all of this. Most people, most of the time, running around like ants in that world where we are now, just going after whatever they want at the moment. Whatever, whatever they think they can get. More, more, more. Me, me, me. And never a thought for the one who made it. This is, in fact, a very dangerous position to be in. And so David begins the psalm by reminding us, here's where you are. You are in the world, and God made it, and he made you, and you belong to him. And that is fundamental reality. He moves on in the psalm, and he begins to ask his big questions. He says, who can climb the mountain of the Lord, and who can stand in his holy place? And this verse, verse 3, is packed with meaning in Psalm 24. What's being envisioned here is the mountain, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, right? So the psalm was actually probably used as people were worshiping God, going in a big procession up this mountain to the place where they worship God, the place where God actually lived. At that time, it wasn't a temple, right? Because who built the temple? Come on, yell it out. We need some interaction here. Solomon built the temple, right? And this is David writing. So it's not a temple yet. That's why he doesn't say temple. It's actually the tabernacle that David has brought into Jerusalem and placed on top of that hill. And so they're going up to this immense and incredible tent that they had built, God had directed them to build, and the place where he said he would live. He would dwell inside that tent. And that's very important to understand for understanding this psalm. What does it mean that God lived inside the tabernacle, inside the tent, inside the temple? We're told in the Bible over and over again that the whole world, in fact the whole universe and beyond, are full of the presence of God. So how is it then that God lived in a box inside a temple or a tent? Well the answer is that God fills the whole universe, but most of the time we don't sense his presence. We can't see, we can't feel that he lives and inhabits this whole universe. He is in some way veiled from most people most of the time. Hidden in some way. But what he did with the Israelites was he said, I'm going to live inside this temple in a very dramatic and visible way. And that's why you had to have all these rules about how you could enter the temple because sin cannot stand, evil cannot stand in the presence of God when it is that visible and that present, it will be destroyed. And so this for us represents now a place that we can go through Jesus. No longer, because of what Jesus did on the cross, no longer does God live his visible ...powerful, obvious presence doesn't only live in one place in the world. It is now accessible to every person in the world through Jesus Christ. The presence of God is accessible to every person in the world through Jesus Christ. Now what is this presence? Later in the psalm it talks about the glory of God... And we had the question this week, what is the glory of God? We sing that that word very often in church, oh, you're so glorious, but do we really know what it means? Each kind of thing that God has created has its own kind of glory. You could think, for example, of the glory of a cheeseburger. We're going to have a little barbecue over at our house for those who are involved in VBS and Youth Week. After the service, and you can imagine the glory of a cheeseburger. You know that time when you're, you just really are craving a cheeseburger. And you see one, you know, maybe it's like the Jimmy Buffett song, The Cheeseburger in Paradise. And it's built so perfectly and it's, it just looks so delicious. And it's got this kind of glory that it can captivate you for that moment. You just want that cheeseburger more than anything else. So a cheeseburger or anything that God has created has a certain kind of glory to it. A certain kind of of goodness, of beauty. But as we go up, as we move up in the created order, we move from cheeseburgers to living beings and then we move up to human beings. The glory of those things increases and is of a different kind. The glory of a human being far outstrips the glory of a cheeseburger. And we all have had this experience and that's why you turn on the radio and almost every song you hear is about love between human beings because when we are captivated by the glory of another person, that far outshines anything else we could do, whether it's eating a cheeseburger or whether it's some pursuit or job that we have because the glory of a human being is far beyond anything else in creation. But then there is a higher glory yet. And that is the glory of God himself. And if you have ever experienced, and I know many of you have, you have ever experienced the glory of God, the presence of God in that way where you can sense it deeply and feel what it is, you will never go back to anything else. When you experience the presence of God in a deep way, it will be the only thing you live for for the rest of your life. Just think of how people responded to Jesus when he came into the world. Because Jesus was the exact representation of the glory of God. And when he came into the world, there were two reactions. One was fear and hatred. Because they didn't want to experience something with that kind of power. People who wanted control, people who thought they knew how to run their life, didn't want anything to do with him and were so threatened by his very presence that they had to kill it they had to get rid of it. The other experience, the other response to Jesus is exactly the opposite. People who were open to him and who then experienced what he was really like and got to know him said this, I could never live without this man again. There is nothing else in all of life that comes anywhere close to the presence of this one. I will give my life. I will lay down my life because nothing else matters now that I have experienced that presence. And so this is what David is getting at in the psalm because David had experienced this presence of the Lord. He had lived it and he knew there was nothing else close and so he asks us the question in verse 3, who can enter the presence of the Lord? Who is able to go in and be in that very best place to become what they were truly made to be, to live in the presence of the one true God? And then he begins to give us his answers. And his first answer is kind of scary. At least I hope it scares us as we hear it. He says this, the one who is able to enter into the presence of the Lord is the one with clean hands. Clean hands represent the things that you have done, the things that you do, your actions. The one who has not done anything wrong, that is the one who's able to enter the presence of the Lord. He goes on and says, the one who's able to enter the presence of the Lord is the one with a pure heart. We've kind of watered down the word pure a little bit in the church and in our culture and oftentimes we just take it to mean something that's good. Something that is the right way. But what does pure actually mean? It means not mixed with anything else. If I hold up to you my ring and I say that this ring is pure gold, what do I mean? I mean that it's all gold and there is nothing else in it but gold. If I look at some action or some person and I say that is pure evil, what do I mean? It is evil and nothing else. And so what is David saying here? That the one who is able to enter the presence of the Lord is the one who is purely devoted to God, who wants nothing else but God himself. (laughs) Who is able to climb the mountain of the Lord? He continues, the one who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. This is just another way of saying the same thing. They've not run after any other thing with their deepest desires other than God himself. And then finally, the one who does not swear by what is false. The one who has not lived a lie or lived what is fake. How many of us walk around with a fake, a fake face, a false image on, How many of us live out of our true selves, who we truly are and God made us to be? And so as David asked this question, who can enter the presence of the Lord? The resounding answer has to be none of us. Praise be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, David didn't even know about Jesus yet, and yet he knew God would make a way because he knew God had made a way even for him to enter that presence. And in the very next verse, he comes to his second answer. Who can enter the presence of the Lord? And this one is so packed, it's almost going to knock me over, just the one verse. Such is the generation. The ones who can enter the presence of the Lord are the generation who seek him. The generation who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So, David's answer then is no one can enter the presence of the Lord by their own strength. It is impossible. You have to be made clean and pure. How can you be made clean and pure? He knew that if you seek God, you seek Him in the right way, God will change you, He will give you cleanness. He will give you purity. He will make you into one like Jesus was. That verse where he says that we are to seek the face of the God of Jacob. That is remarkable. He doesn't say the God of Israel. He doesn't say the one God of the whole world. Even though those things would be true, he says the God of Jacob. And it is an astonishing fact about God that he is willing to be called the God of Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? Do you remember the story of his family and his life? What does Jacob's name mean? He came out of the womb trying to get ahead of his brother and grabbing onto his heel. And so his parents named him the one who causes his brother to stumble. The one who causes his brother to stumble. And his life became exactly like that. He lived in a super dysfunctional family. You think you have a dysfunctional family? Go read the stories about Jacob and Esau and his parents, Isaac and Rebecca. Go read the story. You're going to think your family's awesome after you read about them. Each parent had a favorite child and they totally favored them all the time from the time they were little. Each child was, spent their time, especially Jacob, doing almost nothing but trying to get ahead of his brother, steal his inheritance, steal his blessing, and he succeeded. He spent his whole time growing up and then the first 15 years of his adult life doing nothing but trying to cheat other people so that he could get ahead. And one night in his life, it all caught up with him. He had been kicked out of the place where he'd gotten married to two different women. Bad idea. Bad idea. He'd been kicked out of that place because he had cheated. <laughs> He'd actually cheated using, well, using prayer. It's bizarre. He'd cheated uh, the, his cousin or his, his in-law's family. And then he had run away. And then he was going back to the land where he came from. And he realized that his brother Esau was coming with an army to kill him. Put yourself in that place for a minute. You've been striving your whole life, trying to get ahead, trying to save up everything you can, trying to get for yourself, and you've got all this stuff, and you're running away, and then you realize that your own brother is bringing an army to kill you and your entire family. And at that moment, in prayer one night, Jacob reaches the place where he gives up. He says, God, I know you're really out there somehow. And I have failed. My life is ruined. I've killed my whole family. I've killed myself by the way that I've lived. I cannot do this on my own. If you don't come and help me, I am dead. I am over. And you remember what happens that night. An angel shows up. And what would you do if an angel showed up while you were praying? Imagine you're praying in your room at night and an angel pops into the room. Almost everyone in the Bible, when they encounter an angel, they are terrified. They fall down on their face and cry out, Oh, don't kill me. You're, you're far more powerful than me. What does Jacob do? Jacob is so done with his life, he realizes so deeply that God is his only hope, that he sees that angel and he attacks it. He runs at an angel. Now remember, one angel vaporized the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I told the youth this week, an angel is kind of like a compact walking nuclear bomb. And Jacob goes after the angel... He knows there's no way he can defeat the angel but he doesn't care. He says, he grabs onto this angel, he says, "I will not let go of you until you say you are with me, until God answers my prayer. I will never let go even if you kill me." And the angel says, "Let's test that. Let's find out if you're really true." And so they wrestle all night long, even to one point where the, I mean the angel could afflict him across, you know, across Israel with one finger. But the angel comes down to his level and wrestles with him all night. Even at one point, breaking one of his hips, pushing it out of the socket. And Jacob will not let go. Until finally God says, okay. Okay, you have proven to me that your heart is only for me. You have really given up all these other things, Jacob. And so I say, I will bless you. I will be with you. Jacob wakes up the next morning. His brother shows up with the army and says, "Hey, we came to give you a hug and some presents." <laughs> Praise God. How powerful is God? He doesn't even have to destroy or or do anything scary to stop Esau. He just he just makes a move in Esau's heart. But in Psalm 24 it says that this is these are the people who will enter the presence of God, will live where we are truly supposed to live. The people who seek the face of God, like Jacob did, the God of Jacob. And the psalm ends with an interesting vision and a kind of a warning The psalm ends with these words, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Then it repeats it again. Who is this King of glory? Up until this point in the psalm, we've had a couple different images. First, we've had the image of the whole world, God looking down on it, it's all His. Then we've had the image of all the people going up the mountain to enter the presence of God. But now we have a different image. Now we are inside the place of worship. You see, we're calling for God to come in. At this point in the psalm, we are inside the tabernacle, inside the temple, inside the church. Only here's the thing God is not inside the church. At the end of the psalm, you have all the worshipers inside, but God is on the outside. And they are calling for the gates to be lifted up, that God would come in. This is actually closely related to another uh, very famous part of Scripture, Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus writes a letter to the church of Laodicea. You remember this. He tells them that they are lukewarm. He warns them. He says, Christ is about to spit you out of your mouth because even though you look like, you look like you're seeking after God, I know in your hearts you're not. In your hearts you're just kind of, you're just kind of lukewarm. You don't really care. And then he goes on to give the same image that we see in Psalm 24. The image of Jesus standing outside of the church. Behold, I stand at the door, and I am knocking. Jesus is at the door where in Revelation 3? He's at the door of the church, and he's trying to get in. But what he needs is for his people to seek him. What he needs is for his people to get up and come and open the door, and he promises that if they do, he will come in. He will come in with his powerful presence, the presence that will change your life forever the moment you experience it. You will become what you were made to be and never want anything else. But we have to get up and go and open that door. So, David ends with this warning this place of worship is full of people. And Jesus promises this. It was true of Israel then. It's been true of the church throughout its history. It's true of our church now. That the church has many people who are seeking lots of things around God. Seeking the church. Seeking the gifts of God. Seeking the things that they might get out of church. But not seeking the face of the One not seeking God himself with their deepest heart. And he leaves us with this warning. Do not be those people. You must seek God. If you stir yourself up and run after him, and this takes your will, this takes decision and action on your part, he will meet you. He will help you. He will make you love him more and more until it becomes like a snowball rolling downhill. You are, as you are every Sunday, in extreme danger right at this moment as we close the sermon. You are in danger of having come to church and it having done you no good. Because hearing a sermon doesn't do anything for you. Singing a worship song doesn't do anything for you unless you go out and put it into practice in your life.